I'm Jackie Patton, Managing Director of Inkblot Creative, a new and very different communications and marketing agency. I'm so excited to be back with Series 3 of Stay Connected, where I have got the absolute pleasure of chatting to another fantastic group of business leaders, creatives and everyone in between about how they stay connected. We chat about big goals, important relationships and holding on to a sense of purpose when what's going on in the world isn't always in our control. I can't wait for you to join us for these conversations. So tune in every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher for the next free episode. And if you're enjoying these chats as much as we are, I'd really love for you to leave us a review. This week, I'm talking to social psychologist Angelica Love. She has had the most amazing life and upbringing, and I genuinely could have spent a whole afternoon in conversation with her. We talked about our personal social networks, her biggest lessons from academia, and how fashion can make you feel. Now, that wasn't a topic we thought we'd go into, but it really was fantastic. So sit back, relax, grab a cup of tea. This is Stay Connected. So Angelica, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So to kick off every episode, I always ask my guests to bring an object that they feel really connected to. So what have you brought with you today? I actually found this pretty tricky because I tend not to be connected very strongly to objects. So I brought you something. So so I think if my house was on fire or my, my flat was on fire, and I, I would have a hard time selecting something to save this however the thing i brought is you can't buy it it's so unique that you know so that's why i chose it over for example my my poetry anthology because i can get another copy of that if i really needed to so this is a framed letter that my husband and i got from david attenborough on the occasion of our wedding (laughs) so i'll tell you the story behind that maybe i should read out to you what it says yeah do So it's handwritten and it says, Dear Angelica and Edward Love, I'm delighted to know that my programs have had such happy influence. I wish you joy in your marriage, David Attenborough. 27th of May, 2017. And we got this because we sent him a photograph of us on our wedding day to tell him that we had gotten close as a couple over the Africa documentaries that he made a few years ago. And to basically say thank you for producing such a wonderful program. I'd also, around that time, I've been reading his biography, Life on Air. And we, Ed and I, are just are just big fans of his work. And I guess the, the Oxford and the Cambridge connection that we all have created a sort of common framework around knowledge creation and and being closely connected to a, a place that we wanted to share with him and I mean to be honest I also had a sort of dreadful feeling that I was soon going to wake up and hear the news that he had died and I wanted to make sure I had told him how much I love his work before that happened now, but, uh, like, worst day. when day yeah, I know. <laughs> that's just let's I was glad I thought 2020 might be the the year that through yet another disaster but we're he's holding on and he's doing well so that's good fingers crossed exactly so the reason I chose this as an object is that it is a good reminder of where 
my my favorite person and I have have come from basically Ed and I both met at Oxford and we met over like, deeply nerdy conversations and connected over you know exhibitions and museums and documentaries and Ed is an Egyptologist so he studies ancient texts and hieroglyphs so cool. and, yeah and and I at the time I was 19 going on 20 and I had a habit of asking all my my Oxford friends who excitingly were studying all these various subjects I was asking them to take me and show me their work if that was possible so show me what they were working on so I had a um a chemistry friend who was showing me a crystallography lab and I had a, a physics friend who was showing me the the lasers in Oxford and you know a biologist who was showing me the snakes in in their in their habitats in in the in the zoology building and so I asked Ed to show me the Egyptology collection in the Ashmolean and the rest is history so we also got married in Oxford and uh, that that's um it's the start of our life together and so I would I treasure that as a memento I of that particular that, time that was your chat up line can you show me yeah. Egyptology? Oh yeah, and and I mean, in all honesty, I did not think it was a it was going to be a chat up line. I just, <laughs> I mean, this is a podcast about connections and human connections, right? So for me, I am just genuinely curious about people and what they do, and so I've always had that habit of reaching out, and I and I don't really have a lot of um, fear of authority or, or inhibition uh, around unfamiliar people. So I, I tend to just walk up to strangers and ask them to, to show me, to, to tell me what they enjoy doing. And, and Ed is a really passionate person and I'm incredibly knowledgeable. So why not take advantage of that and get a free tour through the Ashmolean connection? And a husband out of it in the bargain as well. Well, yeah, you never know. <laughs> Love it. So you mentioned there that you've always been, and we're going to talk more about what you do now and stuff and kind of explain all about what you've ended up doing and kind of what you ended up at Oxford for and how that's kind of shaped your life. But you mentioned there that you've always had this kind of curiosity. Is that something that was the case even when you were little, when you were a child? Oh yeah, I would say so. So my grandma tells this very um, sweet story of Angelica as a eight or nine year old walking with her my grandma's very short so she has all her clothes tailor made and we walked to her tailor and I accompanied her and we walked in and and she tells a story of how I walked up to the the tailor and introduced myself with my full name and a handshake as a, you know as a nine-year-old girl um in a in an environment that didn't exactly call for it <laughs> Yeah, like the prom or something. I love it. Yeah, exactly. It's, so I think that's that's something that my parents have always encouraged. For When I was four, my mum says that we went to a restaurant and I spilled something. And the waiter or the waitress was very eager to get a cloth to mop up the spillage. And my mum insisted that I myself, as a little four-year-old, went to the kitchen to get the cloth to wipe up the spillage. I think that is just, she's always, my parents both actually have always made sure we are confident in unfamiliar environments and able to find solutions to the problems that were presenting themselves and, and felt confident, sure, to ask for help as well, but also ultimately to go and tackle a matter ourselves. So from very, very young age, I've, I've had that, you know, disposition, I guess, 
to learned disposition maybe to um to be comfortable around strangers and strange environments and you so you grew up in germany yes i am german in fact and i've got three siblings i'm the oldest so maybe i've always been a bit of a pack leader in that regard we were all born in very close succession so my youngest sister is is but five years younger than me and we're a pretty close bunch now as well all doing very different things but um, this is the first time in a long time that we're all back in Germany at the same time so I spend a lot of time in Norway and in the UK and I'm sure we get to talk about that as well but uh, and then my my brother was in Russia for a bit and my sister in Canada but now we're all back on on home soil so to speak. It's funny isn't it how sometimes the kind of stars align and everyone ends up in the same place again. Has it been nice having them close again? Yes, although I think in general, I don't need people who are important in my life to be very close, to feel connected to them. What it has done certainly is it has created more opportunities for the people who matter in my life to genuinely witness what's going on in my life. When I was 16, I moved away to Norway on my own to uh, go to an international school, United World College, which was probably the biggest fork in the road for me looking back. And since then, I've been away from home. You know, since then, my development, my intellectual development, my personal development, the themes and topics that emerge and that are important to me, they have happened out of sight it seems, although maybe not quite, of my parents and my siblings. And sometimes coming back to visit home would then create environments where I would feel maybe I'm not being fully understood, you know, especially when you are in a boarding school environment that is so unique and very idealistic and very bohem in many ways. Or when you're then in an, in an Oxford college environment, which is, I mean, worlds removed from what my, my parents or my siblings experienced at university, then it can feel a bit lonely to come home and, and see actually, you know what, I've grown. There are all these rituals and traditions and reference points that are just not part of their world either. So in a way, moving back to the same country has at least created a more continuous kind of exchange of experiences. And that has made us feel closer. But when I think about friends and mentors and yes, family members too, I don't need to see them very often in order to feel close to them. It's interesting, isn't it, what you say about that? It's it's shared experience. And like you say, moving moving away from home when you're very young, like 16, that's there's so much growing to be done, isn't there? Like I know when you're 16, you feel like you know all of the things. Um, but yeah, definitely. There is. And I don't know whether I would do it again. I'm a big fan of the United World College model. They they were founded on the idea of creating a sustainable and peaceful future by bringing children together from all around the world and creating an international environment where we can genuinely, in a safe environment, learn from each other. So I, I am I'm a strong believer in that principle. But, you know, I also had um, a lot of growing and a lot of especially self-awareness to develop and a lot of um, cognitive mental resilience to develop. And doing that away from home, yeah, it, it is possible, I'm sure, but it, it's 
not everybody needs to move away from home at 16. And and maybe I wasn't one of the people who really needed to do that. I'm sure I would have found my, my way another, through other avenues as well. But I mean, ultimately, I'm super grateful to have had the opportunity to do it. And yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't miss it for the world. But I also think it was a, it was a leap of faith for sure. Yeah. And also you then, like you said, it, your, your life experience is then so different from your family and your friends at home. It's bound to be a bit lonely, right? Because you're doing something that hasn't been done in your social circle before in that way. Yeah. Yeah. But I've always, wherever I went in life, I've always found people to connect with. Never a, a large group of people. I've never been the center of a clique or um, somebody who would have, you know, um, have trouble selecting who to invite to a birthday party because only, you know, because I knew too many people. I've always had a very small number of close friends and I find them wherever I go. So for example, to do my master's in cross-cultural psychology, I went back to Germany after my BA in Oxford. And I kid you not, I found one friend during those two years, but he's an amazing person and he's my person, right? And in a way we are compatible because of all the, you know, bits and bobs that I have sort of tagged onto my personality over time, over all these other growth experiences. And I don't know if I had stayed at home in Bielefeld in a, in a relatively unremarkable city in Germany, then um, then maybe I wouldn't be who I am today. And so I wouldn't have made the friends I did end up making. It's interesting, isn't it? And I think I'm, I'm quite similar. And I, we talked before we started recording, you said, you know, that you're an introvert. And I'm mm-hmm. definitely an extrovert. But... I am one of, similarly to you, somebody that has a small group of really close people to me. Um, I know lots of people and I'm happy with lots of new people and I'm, I love a party, don't get me wrong. And right now I would kill for a party. Um, but I'm the same. I don't miss parties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're different in that way for sure. I really miss parties. Um, <laughs> but I'm the same. I kind of have a small group of people that I'm super, super close to. And I'm okay with that. And I think as I've got older, I've got more okay with that. I don't know about you. Have you found that? Yeah, I've become more okay with a lot of things about myself. (laughs) (laughs) I'm only 27. So I, I can't say I'm old, but I, I've grown more comfortable with the quirks and oddities and, you know, the, the edginess that I'm sure I have in some environments where I, I find it hard to just blend in, but the older you get, the more of a, you know, deal with it kind of attitude you develop. I mean, to be fair, this is being tested now that I am for the first time in a highly professional environment, having just started a new job and, and here the rules of the game are a bit different and I'm, I'm making sure I fit in all right. But, you know, working as an academic before then and working freelance, I I sure had a lot of leeway when it came to just being myself. But at the same time, being in that sort of, um, what's the word? Well, like in in a germination kind of environment, I had the opportunity to to grow into the person I could and wanted to be before having to then go into an environment where being more, 
well adjusted was again of primary importance. So I'm grateful for having had that period of trying things out and being relatively unobserved. <laughs> and so I feel um, I feel quite comfortable in in the shape I've grown into. <laughs> I love that. I love that thought as well because lots of people. You're right. You kind of go to school. You might go to university if you're lucky or if that's the way your, your career or your path takes you. And then, you know, invariably we all get a job and there is a lot of kind of outside influence on how you should behave and what you should be like. Um, so it's quite exciting that you've had a chance to kind of figure that out in different environments before you've had to kind of think about, because I guess that gives you more leeway to be like, actually, this is who I am and this is what I'm about and this is what I'm interested in. Yeah. Yeah. Although to be fair, this, um, maybe our listeners would think that, it is a relatively um, spurious or kind of um, free-flowing kind of experience of, you know, see where you grow and, and I'm sure you'll end up becoming who you were always meant to become. That's not quite it for me. I think, well, I know for a fact I'm a rather deliberate person. I set pretty specific goals. I make sure I have, I have over the years actually been able to establish a bit of a private council um, for myself, a board of advisors, so to speak. And I, I am in regular contact with these people and ask questions and try to learn and try to learn from them, but also through reflection with them, become more aware of who I want to be and, and where my growth potential lies and where I would want to, you know, stretch and be uncomfortable in order to grow. And, you know, talking about connections and talking about networks, that to me is probably one of the biggest, has been one of the biggest um, riches in my life over the last decade is to have these, this pretty diverse group of people who mostly don't know each other. <laughs> um, men, women, different generations, different professions for sure all um, be so generous as to take an interest in my growth and be open um, so I can just call them and ask for some advice. It's been, it's been helpful launching into a new environment because I, at no point did I feel alone or at mm. sea. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm deeply uncomfortable still in the new work environment I'm in. I am certainly, my dad would say, um, he likes to use the, the image of a pig in space. <laughs> so a sort of foreign object without any reference points in an environment it probably shouldn't be in, um, just floating along. I feel a little bit like that sometimes, but but I, I never felt like I was fully alone. So I always had a radio contact with, you know, with the base. <laughs> I, this makes me want to meet your dad, if that's his, the kind of thing. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I love that. He actually, um, he is a remarkably observant person, but he doesn't really show it very much. So the other day he wrote to me, I mean, my dad never writes handwritten letters, but he wrote an 11 page handwritten letter to me, probably for the first time in my life, detailing all the things he had observed since my primary school days. I mean, just to sort of chart a path of progression for me from his point of view. And my mother has been telling me he's been sitting at his desk for days and weeks, going through old notebooks and calendars in order to like, and I, I for very many years thought he's not seeing what I'm doing. Yeah. yeah? 
And that to a daughter or to any child is so important to feel seen and heard. We all know that's one of the most fundamental psychological needs that we have. So to get, you know, to get it black and white, all the things he has seen was incredibly moving and, and very unexpected. And really yeah. interesting that he's had a moment where he thought, I need to get that out. And yes. She- and to me, and to him, it was my daughter, my eldest child is launching into a career. I think that for him was the point where he thought now she's at the age where I feel I've got something to contribute. You know, all this child rearing, all this school and homework and then university and all this sort of, you know, unworldly kind of academic um, head heavy, like cognitive stuff. It's not exactly his um, his field of expertise, but when it comes to getting stuff done and earning money, <laughs> that's where he feels more comfortable. I love that. And I wanted to talk to you about um, kind of Oxford and, and university. Because sure. Oxford University is a place of books and movies and, you know, everyone in the world has heard of it and has an image of what it is and, and you know, what it would be like to be there. It has this whole story and narrative, doesn't it, all around the world when you say Oxford. But how did you, I guess, how did you end up there? I'd love to know. Mm-hmm. And how did you find that experience? What Did it kind of match what you were expecting? So I think you are overestimating how strong the narrative around Oxford is outside of the UK. Ah, okay. So what you just said about people having an idea of what it might be like like to be there, from my experience, in my experience, is not something that people who are not familiar with the British educational system share. Okay. So I, um, and I resented this for a time in my life. I always grew up expecting to go to university, right? I come from a family of of doctors and academics and going to university was just a done thing. And I resented that, as I said, for, for a period in my life, um, actually during my BA, because I thought, has it, have I actually ever been the, given the real freedom to consider doing something with my hands? You know, I considered for a long time becoming a photographer. Could I not become a journalist, maybe a radio journalist without going to university? There was a period of my life where I, where I thought I should really have given been given all the options and never felt like I had. But I mean, looking back on it now, university was always the right environment for me because I, I, I love to think aloud together with other people. And I think a university is a good environment to practice that. Now, Oxford, I had not considered applying to Oxford until like, what, two weeks before the submission deadline or something like that. I was in Norway at the time, as I said, at the United World College, and all my friends were applying to mostly American universities, some British universities, because we we had been studying in English, and in addition to in Norwegian, but mostly in English. And my my friends were mostly from pretty economically poor backgrounds, and so going to the university where you would get full scholarships from if you came from their background, was the sort of done thing. It was an out in a way, you know, for friends from often developing countries and um, often without parents or parents who could support them. But I was keen to stay in Europe because I wasn't quite ready yet to go to move that far away from home. And so the UK was was an obvious next 
choice. And so then I just completed my UCAS application and looked at where you can study something that has to do both with science and with um, humanities. And so psychology felt like a good subject to straddle those boundaries because I couldn't decide. And and then Oxford just was one of the, the great places to study psychology. So I put it down on my application, not really fully aware of the implications of that <laughs> of that choice. But it's, I mean, it's just another example of not being afraid of unfamiliar environments where the expectations are high. So um, I had great mentors and supporters who knew the system more and, and who helped me make a, you know, craft a good application. So I'm not saying it just all came haphazardly, naturally, without any effort. It surely did require some of that. But but what I'm trying to say is I didn't think about Oxford as that unreachable, obscure, mm. mysterious kind of place, if that makes sense. And maybe sometimes if you don't have that narrative in your head, it's helpful, right? Because you're just... Oh, yeah. I mean, we all know about self-limiting beliefs, right? And that didn't play too much of a role. What did play a role once I had applied was, was I going to fit in culturally in that mm. environment? That was a question I was certainly asking myself. I mean, because if you look Oxford up online, you'll find a lot of well-dressed, um, studious, posh. I didn't know the word posh then, but what we would now describe as posh people. And I, you know, was living on the countryside in Norway with my yellow wellies and my, um, I just shaved my head. I, I was sort of like, you know, in a bit of a rebellious phase, hung out with poets and, but ultimately was always super studious. So I, I rocked up in Oxford. My hair had grown back by then, so it didn't stand out that badly. But I very quickly found my crowd, right? I, I found people who wrote poetry, were very interested in poetry, and those were the first people I connected with in the theatre crowd. And then, you know, I loved and absolutely relished that interdisciplinary environment. Because when you live in a college environment, and this is different from German universities, which are usually not college based, you have breakfast with chemists, with astronomers, with Egyptologists, for, <laughs> for better or worse. We know that that's important. So you will end up meeting a lot of different people and people from all around the world, which was an environment I, I was familiar with from before and felt very comfortable in, and people who were genuinely interested in what they were doing. And that, to me, that's, that's the kind of environment I love to be in. It's probably not so important what exactly people are interested in, but if they are pursuing a, a level of excellence in a particular field and they do it with passion, then I feel at home in that environment. It's good. Uh, interesting. You said before that one of the things you love about your husband is that he's a passionate person. Yeah. And you just mentioned there that passion. And so is that a running theme for you in the kind of relationships in your life that the people you feel connected to are people that are passionate? Certainly the people I enjoy talking to the most and learning from the most. Yes. I don't know if passion really is the right word um, because I'm sure there are people who are very passionate about what they do, but who don't need to talk about it a lot. And then there are also people who talk a lot about what they do, but they're not particularly passionate about it. So again, I think it is that um, the pursuit of excellence, mm. that's the, that's the connecting bit. And that can, you know, 
make spending time with me pretty exhausting for from the point of view of, of others at times. And it can be exhausting for me. That unrelenting pursuit of excellence is not necessarily something that is very healthy all the time, especially when you then end up wanting to do it in all sorts of different parts of your life. So for me, that's running and uh, yoga and reading. And so you you know, end up having loads of expectations of myself that no reasonable person can ever expect to meet. Um, but that's probably a connecting element, yeah. I, I love the, this image of you kind of wanting to be a yogi that runs marathons, that has a number one podcast, that has an insane career, <laughs> all these things. But I'm going to know you. I feel like it's potentially possible for you. <laughs> oh, bless you. Um, uh, yes. What something, so you mentioned my podcast. It's probably the first thing I've done in a really long time that I didn't start with the intention of it becoming a great success that I started purely because I loved doing it simply for my own pleasure. (laughs) And I, I just saying that it makes me feel so, it makes me feel so deeply satisfied that I did that. Not always trying to prove something to yourself or to others is, I mean, sure, most people understand that that's really important and, and a very healthy thing to do. But for, I guess, what, what the American uh, colleagues might call a type A personality like myself, that's not exactly the first sort of instinct that we have. We like to do whatever we do really, really well. And don't get me wrong, I want to do my podcast really, really well. But I'm not doing it in order to prove anything to myself or to others. Yeah, it's for the love of it. It's just for the love of it. Yeah. I love that for you, though. I think that that's amazing. And we'll put a link to your podcast in the show notes as well so that people can go and find it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the conversations you have are really cool and I've really enjoyed listening to them. Thank you for saying that. You're very welcome. And you've got some really interesting people that that talk to you as well. So yeah, definitely one to check out. You mentioned, so Oxford was where you did your BA, but you've also got a PhD. Yeah, I also did that at Oxford. I went back there. And am I right in saying that part of this was around kind of friendship and network? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell Which me I think that, is, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I'm a social psychologist and that means that I study people in their social context. Right. And ultimately, that means people and their relationships and the relationships of the people we have contact with. So the relationship networks, ultimately, my friends and my friends, friends and their friends. And friendship, it turns out, is probably the most effective way of reducing prejudice. So I became interested in social psychology, the human in the group, because in part I had experienced firsthand at the United World College in Norway how incredibly effective friendships with people from other ethnicities, religious backgrounds, cultural cultures or nations, how strongly that shapes not just what I feel and think about these individual friends, but also how I relate to their religious group as a whole or their nation or, you know, their their ethnic group or people of their sexual orientation or whatever. So psychological research has shown that this individual experiences, individual connection to somebody else generalizes. That means it shapes how we feel about a group of people who we haven't yet met in person. And if you think about prejudice and 
discrimination is on the basis of a group membership mm. that is ultimately pretty arbitrary often. And the idea that you might be able to shape how we feel about an entire group or category on the basis of one or two or a few individual connections, that I found very fascinating. And that's something that made sense to me based on my own experience. So that's how I, beca how I became interested in that. And then over time, that interest merged into understanding relationship networks. So thinking about where in the wider web of relationships people are and what that does for them in terms of their mental health, but also in terms of their cognitive flexibility, their creativity, and whether some people are better positioned than others in their networks to make introductions, to forge these sort of friendship relationships for others. I just, I could literally talk to you about this all day long. It is fascinating. And I'm sure that loads of people listening will be thinking, oh, I can think of somebody in my network mm -hmm. that feels like the connector or the introducer. And, I, you know, you can you can start to imagine your own kind of, I've got like an image of a spider's web in my head and kind of Absolutely. where it goes. And I tell you, social psychology or studying psychology in general is such an enriching experience because you can take it out of the classroom mm. immediately, right? You can go out on the street, on your high street, and you start observing things that you learned about in theory happening, unfolding right in front of your eyes. And that is probably why I, be, why I stayed interested in it for, for a long while, because it had this immediacy mm. that maybe studying a bacterium in a Petri dish or, you know, supersonic waves doesn't quite, I mean, although I'm sure for my, for my biology or physics friends, these things are very immediate as well. But for me, as a person interested in human behavior, the ability to take abstract knowledge into the real world immediately was always incredibly enticing and, and super motivating. And it's really, you've mentioned kind of discrimination and prejudice. Um, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking of all the instances in history that I can think of. And obviously, I am no expert in this. But you can just think, can't you, about different things that have happened and this kind of othering that happens when we think about people not like us as the other separate. And I think it's really fascinating what you're saying, that actually an individual connection with a group of people that isn't exactly like you suddenly lets you see that group differently. Yeah, and not always I mean, there's, there are caveats to this, right? Not always differently in a positive way, yeah. necessarily. If you have a negative experience, that might also shape how you feel about the group. But, and another thing that to me was very um, striking throughout my studies was this idea that grouping people together and forming a judgment or an opinion on that collective is in and of itself a pretty useful psychological process. I mean, imagine having to judge every single person that you meet on the street with whom you're not going to have a meaningful long-term relationship, but who you might want to ask for directions or who you might want to watch your bag whilst you go to the loo on the train, you know, like imagine having to form an individual impression of every single person you meet. We meet, we have billions of impressions bombarding our brain at every given point in time. So mental shortcuts generalizations, assumptions, predictions, ultimately, are a very natural way, very normal and well-adapted adapted way that our mind works. 
it works for all sorts of stimuli. It works for sounds, for example. So people speaking with different dialects are going to pronounce individual sounds differently. Now, nevertheless, our brain sort of groups different sounds together and makes sure we interpret them as an A or a A, mm. uh, right? And so don't have to perceive all the nuances and discriminations and distinctions that there are in our physical environment because understanding something and using the information that we perceive in a way that mostly works, it, it works mostly on the basis of a few generalizations. It's a way, it's a more efficient way for the brain to work. Now, the, the painful side effect is that, of course, that um, can lead to a lot of self-serving and ultimately painful and um, harmful and violent and incredibly bigoted interactions with people who are quote unquote different mm. and to the over emphasizing of differences that are entirely meaningless creating meaning around a difference like skin color and then all of a sudden creating a thing like race and racism i'm not i'm not saying that that is a an adjust a adaptive socially justified um cognitively justified behavior but i'm saying it is it is the consequence of an efficiency process with gone wrong in many ways and then of course you have institutions around there that support support that and in, encourage those sort of shortcuts and reward them and um you know and then in the end we curtail our networks and we hunker down in in relatively homogenous networks and end up not meeting other people anymore and so and it's the that network focus, is, isn't it you kind yeah. of create your own because of those shortcuts that are keeping you safe and were built to stop you potentially having to make, like you said, individual assessments every minute of the day, mm -hmm. that can then lead to biases that mean that you generalize when it's not necessary. Yeah, exactly. And, and often so quickly, you don't even notice it. And from a relationship, from a relationship network point of view, we end up in echoes and silos, echo chambers and silos and, neighborhoods where we don't have the opportunity to meet people from other backgrounds anymore you know you see it in the u.s at the moment where only a few decades ago people were very comfortable marrying people who voted for a different party and that's becoming increasingly rare this sort of sense that um the fissures the dividing lines between group a and group b are so unsurmountable mm. so essential so character defining that's when it becomes truly dangerous for society and it creates all these fractions that ultimately can lead to a splintering of of a community of a society and ultimately that's what my podcast just to sort of loop back to it is is trying to explore what can we do about that mm. and my research has shown that friendships relationship networks understanding relationship networks building connections is one of the key key ways of overcoming those boundaries And it, it's so fascinating, isn't it? Because as you're, think, you're talking there, like you said, a lot of it is unconscious. So, you know, you might think that you're somebody who is super like, I love everyone and I would be friends with anybody. And of course, I have no bias at all. And I'm wonderful. But it's just not the case, right? All of us have got these kind of unconscious things, sometimes conscious things that we kind of latch onto. And that must I guess I'd love to know how you think, and maybe even in your own life, kind of how you, what do you do to make sure that you're, you're staying open to your network and your kind of connections being as broad as they can be? And is that a good thing? 
Yeah, I would always advocate for keeping your relationship network as as um, diversely populated as you can. Well, I would be the last person to say that I don't catch myself, you know, making assumptions based on arbitrary surface characteristics. Um, again, I think awareness raising is, is an important piece of it. Not pretend, I mean, pretending that you don't have these prejudices can ultimately lead to a boomerang effect where when your energy lapses and you can't sort of bite your tongue anymore, it comes back to bite you all the stronger. So I would always encourage people to seek out people who are different from them and, um, and try to try to build that personal connection that then leads to empathy and trust, which we know ultimately has a ripple effect through, you know, through people you haven't met yet. But also, interestingly, talking about networks, it's not just my friendships that matter, but it's also my friends' friendships that matter. So oh, if I personally don't know somebody from a Muslim background, but you do, and you talk to me about it, and, and I consider you part of my in-group, then your Muslim friend will have an influence on me. Mm-hmm. So that's why understanding the wider structure of our relationship, sort of beyond our own immediate group of contacts, is so important because our friends' friends or, or our friends' experiences with other groups have an effect on us as well. And to me, that's a really beautiful thing because it means that even if we are in silos, even if we are well locked into our echo chambers, as soon as somebody within our echo chamber breaks out of there and builds a different connection, has a positive experience with another group or community, there is the the start of breaking out of that echo chamber more widely has been has been made. And it's a, ultimately a hopeful story, I would say. Oh, as you're saying that, I'm getting tingles because it makes me, I, sometimes I worry for the state of the world. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, I understand that. Yeah, especially in the last year or so, it, it can feel super overwhelming, can't it? But it's nice to hear that it just takes one one person to make one connection could potentially have a ripple effect. And then I guess, it, like we talked about that spider web, it just grows and grows. And that's amazing. Yeah. Another Another thing I would highlight is, we are, of course, all parts of multiple groups, mm. right? Multiple. We have multiple social identities. So I am not just a social psychologist. I am also a woman, an atheist, you know, somebody in my 20s, white, heterosexual. There are loads of identities that I have, lots of which you won't see when you look at me for the first time, when you get to meet me for the first time, but that I can empathize. But that I can emphasize, this is not my native language, but that, that, I, that I can sort of stress and emphasize in different environments in order to build connections. So to give you an example, my colleagues at Russell Reynolds, the leadership advisory firm I currently work at, I've just started working at, they're based all around the world. So, and they, they come from all kinds of generations. Some of them have been at the firm for, for 20, 30 years. Some of them are very new, just like myself. We all meet in big Zoom calls once in a while. And on the surface, we're all very different from each other, but we have something in common. We have an, a shared firm identity in common as, as one aspect. We also have a lot of other things in common, like our interest in teams and people and leadership, sure. But we have a strong team identity in that we all, 
we have a brand collectively, right? And, and, and you will know more about this than I do. But it is something that we share when in other contexts where we maybe didn't even know that we worked for the same firm, we might think of each other as members of different groups. Yes. And so we might feel more distant from each other. I'm saying that in order to encourage everyone ultimately to, whenever they meet somebody who they think is different or alien or not trustworthy or you know doesn't understand me, think about whether there may be something invisible that you do actually have in common that is meaningful to you. It could be a religious affiliation. It could be a hobby. It could be a shared football club that you're a fan of. There are lots of other group identities that I think we need to become aware of as opportunities for finding connection. Oh, I, I love this. And I think that, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people about business and everybody's like, you must have an elevator pitch. And when you meet someone, you have to do that. Hello, I'm Jackie and I do this for a job. But like you say, that's just one bit of your identity, isn't it? And, you know, you wouldn't know from looking at me that I love really random furniture hunting, for example, (laughs) and that mid-century modern furniture is something that I can spend hours scrolling through on Instagram. But there might be somebody in that room who wouldn't have connected with me because of my job, but might also love old furniture, right? So you, yeah. that's so interesting. I love that. So we, we had a conversation off, off air um, talking about my new glasses. Yes. Like people people looking at the think. photo, people <laughs> looking at the photo I send you, the headshot, they won't see my glasses because I've got a new pair now and they're bright blue. They really are. Um Now, I just needed a new pair of glasses, to be fair. But I also thought to myself, why not Why not get a pair of glasses that helps me get over this, the Oxford intellectual kind of um, first perception? So uh, my education is important to me. I'm sure it's something I talk about a lot in conversations with with strangers, maybe a bit too much sometimes. But there is a part of me that doesn't actually fit that mold, that stereotype that you associate with Oxford. As I said, you know, I hung out with a poet. I wanted to be a photographer for a while or a radio journalist. And, and I now have my own podcast. I love sewing. And, and you know, I, I'm sure there are things about me that you wouldn't immediately expect when you look at me. So I thought, given that I'm going to meet all these new colleagues, <laughs> maybe I should try to turn some of this inside, outside and make it a little bit more visible. So I got myself a quirky pair of gloves. And I love them. So as you said, we came on and I was like, ah, oh, I love your gloves. <laughs> I am one for the colour. I do love a bright outfit or a bright, although I am in a black jumper today, but such is life, it's cold weather. Um, but yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The how, kind of how do you present other aspects of your identity? And I wonder how much of this we do subconsciously. And just as you're saying that, I think I probably dressed when I worked in a corporate job, I probably dress more colourfully than I do. So, you know, I would always, if I was going to an event, I'd wear a bright blue dress or a bright red dress or, because I was really conscious of, I don't want to be another suit, right? I want to be some, I want them to know that I'm not just that. So it is interesting. And I wonder how much of that we do day to day without kind of realising we're doing it as well. Yeah. I, you know, for me, clothes have always been a tricky issue actually because I'm not very... Um, I'm not necessarily always very comfortable in my own body. You know, I I know we talked about being comfortable in your skin. I guess I meant that more metaphorically. But um, so when I have 
free choice. I always wear big jumpers and, and, you know, sort of yoga pants and comfy stuff that is ultimately just clothes for comfort. Now, you can't exactly do that in a business context. And surprisingly, though, I found that shopping for a new wardrobe for this new job and getting myself just three or four pieces that I really love actually has been such a joyous experience. And it's been part of this um, growth experience ultimately, because I'm not trying to make myself into somebody I'm not. I am trying to tease the more comfortable bit out of me, right? I'm trying to awaken the confidence and the, the positive energy and the joy in my own skin. And sometimes putting on a particular dress that you love and it feels great on your skin, but it, you know, it also looks smart is just something I found surprisingly liberating. I thought I was going to feel a bit dressed up, but I am actually beginning to toy with the idea that I enjoy fashion, which to me is, that is so new. And Part of, you know, one part of me frowns at that and says, you know, that's <laughs> a bit superficial. But then another part of me remembers what a teacher of mine said, which is that in business, perception is reality, right? How we come across to other people, the connections we forge, they become the reality of our joint endeavor. That, that also is true. And so it's not to be frowned upon. There are lots of ways that we can build connection with other and a lot of with each other, and a lot of it has to do with the signals we send. A hundred percent. And so the pair of glasses, or you know, the heels that make me feel tall and strong, they're just a part of that. And it's interesting, isn't it? I've always, um, I'm sure if anybody I know well is listening to this, they're going to think, don't talk about your fashion sense, Jackie, because my, my fashion <laughs> sense has often been questionable. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but that's because I, I just like things I like. And if they don't always quite go well together, I've never really cared. And it hasn't really bothered me. No judgment. Um, there are some, there's some great photos and thank God they were taken before social media was a thing. Um, but yeah, there is something empowering, isn't there about kind of being like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to own this for me today. Lipstick's the thing for me. If I'm having a day where I need to feel like, like I'm going to go and get it, I put a really bright lipstick on because it just makes me feel like, right, I'm ready to do business. And again, it's a signal that you say, like, it's kind of a a choice that shows something about you. You Yes, and it's also a signal you send to yourself to remind yourself during the day. So um, when when I was in Norway, we were allowed to wear whatever we wanted for exams. Now, I've never actually had to wear a school uniform because they're not a thing in, in Germany and they certainly weren't in Norway. So I, I, during exams, made sure to put on my brightest possible clothes, the stuff that would make me just joy, joyous wearing it. And then at Oxford, we, of course, we all had to wear subfusk, so gown and blouse and dark trousers and ribbon and, you know, mortarboard and all these things. And I, that gave me a different kind of oomph for an exam because I felt like I was suited up, ready to go, ready to be constant, to, to concentrate, to be professional, to be um, studious and to also, you know, stand in the footsteps of other people who had gone before and worn exactly the same things, sitting at exactly the same tables just 200 years earlier. There was something really beautiful to that as well. So I do think that um, 
it changes how we show up. And that's not to say it helps us or it, it makes us show up in a way that isn't authentic, because I think we have different cards to play and we need to be, well, we have the choice to be um, creative and which cards we choose and how we emphasize our, our various backgrounds and attitudes and intentions to each other. I love, um, you were saying before when we were talking about people being passionate or kind of super engaged and striving for excellence about, um, you kind of gave a physics example mm-hmm. and you, well, that doesn't really get me going, but I'm sure it will for the people that that's their thing. And it's the same with everything we're talking about, right? It's not about, it's about you and about the things that you connect with and making sure that you're being kind of truthful to that, I guess. Um, because if you can find the connection, whether that's your bright clothes for your exam or the historic connection of what you have to wear at Oxford when you go in, then it's truthful for you, right? And it's going to have a much better impact. Yeah, I think so. I didn't expect to talk about fashion. It's not exactly the sort of um, <laughs> the thing that plays an important part of my life every day, but I... I like to think of people as multiplex, right? Having multitudes live inside them. And again, you get to choose to a large extent which part of that multiplexity you emphasize and whatever does that for you, whether that be a song. I mean, for me, it's music as well to get me into a particular frame of mind or, or, you know, a pair of shoes or a tie that you put on. Fair enough, right? Hundred mm, percent. And we we talked before, and we've kind of mentioned the job you're doing now, which is brand new, four weeks, I think. Which congratulations on your new role, and also thank you. Good luck as you go into it, because four weeks in is always a bit. That's the point where you're kind of going, I don't know what's going on. Is <laughs> pig in space? <laughs> yeah, pig in space. I love that. I'm going to start using that analogy. <laughs> um, but would. Angelica, when she was little, have expected to have been doing the kind of job that you are now, the career you're embarking on now? Angelica, when she was little, um, always wanted to do what other people expected her to do, to be honest. Um, I think, interestingly, actually, if you'd asked me 15 years ago what I wanted to be, I would have said a coach, because I'd just done some coaching myself. And interestingly, I now work with a lot of coaches or people with a coaching background and a coaching mindset. But for the longest time in between, I actually thought I was going to become an academic. I excelled in the academic environment. I enjoyed large parts of it. I met some very generous and interesting people in that context. But I ultimately had to admit to myself and this took some prodding and a bit of guidance that I wasn't going to be able to use to really play to my strengths in that environment. I was going to be fine, but it wasn't going to be what would make my heart sing. And in a way, making the podcast contributed to realizing that because it came very naturally to sit down with people and have deep conversations about things that they felt interested in and passionate about. And so, and, and also for all my friends, I, I've, you know, long been the agony aunt, somebody to, to go to and, you know, get a bit of 
good listening. And um, I've done some peer support. I've done, I've led a women's leadership program at my college in Oxford. And those were the kind of, those were the activities that really made me feel, wow, I'm, this comes naturally. I'm actually really enjoying this. I could do this forever. I'm not tiring of it. And so to then discover that there is a whole industry out there that helps top teams, so people who were pursuing excellence, people who were really in it fully, to help those kind of teams and people become better leaders and think about the group dynamics and think about how to put their vision into into practice. I mean, that was just mind-blowing to discover that. And it was a pretty recent discovery. And so I'm delighted to now have the opportunity to learn from people who are really, really good at this and to be given the opportunity to grow in areas where I feel like I am naturally inclined to become really good. It's so interesting. And there's two things that spring to mind as you say that. I guess the first thing is, I think we're taught often, what are your strengths and weaknesses? Work on the weaknesses, work on the weaknesses all the time, aren't we? But actually, when you know what you're good at, it's like you said, that's the stuff that gets you super fired up and makes you feel amazing. Why can't you work on the stuff you're good at and just get better and better at it? So I'm yeah, quite I, I don't quite know about this whole strengths and weaknesses stuff. Um, I don't, I think a lot of time, a lot of people will find that their strengths and their weaknesses are a bit more meta, not pertaining to a particular job or a particular task, but more pertaining to things to do with mindset or with self talk you know the things we tell ourselves or with um social interactions so not necessarily individual things that you can build a job out of so um i have weaknesses that are going to be an important part of this particular job that i'm taking now there are things i want that make me uncomfortable that i want to work on as well but to do what um, to do where, where you find energy, right? Something that energizes you, even when it's hard and when it's not always super interesting. That is something I would wish on everyone. And when we talked before about that kind of ripple effect of, you know, it's really interesting that you're working with people that are in leadership positions. Because I guess if you can help that, that one person at the top or that team at the top, that ripple effect must be enormous. Yeah. I, you know, coming from a United World College background, I, I also, before going to Norway, grew up in a school environment that had a lot to do with people with disabilities. I've always been idealist, right? The work I do, I wanted to make the world better for other people. For a long time, I thought that was going to be either in understanding prejudice and prejudice reduction then I realized often that doesn't actually translate to much change. So that wasn't going to be a good environment for me. But then the next, you know, obvious step would have been to go into a political environment or a charity environment or, you know, these big global institutions, international organizations. And I'm sure a lot of good can come out of all of these different sectors. But from my point of view, society happens at work, right? We spend a huge chunk of our lifetime with colleagues. The atmosphere at work is going to be the atmosphere that we breathe for most of our working lifetime as adults. And if you can shape that kind of experience for people, then you have an effect on a huge number of people. 
And with Russell Reynolds, we're lucky to be working with global companies, world leading companies in, in a large variety of sectors. And you're so right, working with the people at the top there, that's where a lot of change will start that then affects everybody across the organization. And to me, that is that was one of the biggest, you know, um, attractions to this kind of work, a, a streak of idealism that I, I'm going to be careful to hold on to. I love that. And I think it's, yeah, we often think of kind of work as just something we do, right? But it's where we live most of our lives. Yeah. So if you can impact that, and that has a ripple effect on everyone in that organization, and then I'm assuming you're going to work with lots of organizations. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's part of why diversity and inclusion in the workplace is critical. Because there's, I mean, there's very little point in making our neighborhoods more diverse or our schools more diverse when the environment we then spend most of our time in attracts a very homogenous bunch of people who all went to the same schools, have, uh, you know, the same hobbies and speak with the same accent and dialect. And yeah, so building organizations that deliberately include people from all walks of life is not just important from a business point of view. And there is a real business argument to be made, but it is also from a societal point of view, crucial because again, society happens in the workplace. Yeah. Who you spend time with your friends and contacts, and therefore all the people who shape your worldview, like a lot of them are going to be your colleagues at work and, and your, your clients and, more often than not, people's experiences are pretty homogenous at work. If you think about who do you turn to for advice or um, who do you spend most of your time with in the workplace, if we map people's relationship networks based on these kind of questions, they tend to be rather homogenous, both in terms of gender and in terms of seniority and in terms of ethnicity, for sure. And um, currently, the pipelines of talent are such that the higher you rise in an organization, the more homogenous the teams become. And I think that is regrettable and it's dangerous for society at large. But I'm glad that you're working for a company that's doing something about it, Angelica. That makes me feel better to know that people are thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, well, people are certainly thinking about it. Legislators are thinking about it as well. Um, but it's a process that takes time. And it is a process that takes courage. And I'm, I'm excited to be part of a group that takes this seriously and approaches these sort of challenges with conviction and with creativity. Yeah. Well, I just can't think of a better way to end our conversation. What a great way to finish up. And I've had such a lovely time talking to you. I've enjoyed it so much. But before we wrap up... Is there anything else that you want to kind of shout about or tell our, our audience about? Where can they find you? I'll, as I said, I'll pop your podcast in the show notes as well so that everyone can go and give that a listen. Well, Jackie, I want to thank you for for such an um, enjoyable, in-depth conversation. I very rarely have the opportunity to actually think through some of these very important questions together with somebody else. And I'm sure many of our listeners can relate to that experience of making explicit what you implicitly know through conversations with others. And it's always a really enriching part of any day for me when I get to have a chance to have such conversations. Now, as a podcast, I, I always do most of the listen, almost do, almost always do most of the listening. 
So this was a great opportunity to do a bit of the um, the other side of the game as well. So thank you, genuinely. Now, um, thanks for mentioning the podcast. It's called Angelica Loves Conversations. That Angelica with a K, Angelica with a K. And you can find it on all the podcast providers, really. But also just head to angelicalove.com forward slash podcast to find out more about it. And then, um, yeah, leave me, leave me a, a message if you'd like to get in touch via the website as well. I'd love to hear from you. And I really hope you... Um, you get through this pandemic um, in safely and with plenty of connection, even though we're not able to be with each other in person. Well, I've loved talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you too. Hopefully you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. You can tune in every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher for the next free episode. And why not subscribe now so you don't miss out? If you really enjoyed this episode, then please don't forget to leave us a five-star review because they really do help. And why not head over to Instagram, share the episode with your family and friends and tag us too. Thanks for listening and don't forget to stay connected. <laughs>